This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, you might have seen that David Cameron has been in the news a little bit this week with his memoirs serialised in The Times and Sunday Times. We'll talk to Daniel Finkelstein about his role in the book later. But what would you ask him? I can reveal that later this week I'm interviewing David Cameron for the Red Box podcast, the only podcast he's speaking to. And I want to know what you'd like to know. Not about Brexit and all of that. I think we've heard quite enough of that already. But what is it about being Prime Minister, running the country, chairing Cabinet, organising reshuffles, doing PMQs, meeting the Queen or dealing with world leaders that you've always wanted to know? Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk or tweet at timesredbox and I will do my best to get answers. Now, in other exciting podcast news, the Rugby World Cup kicks off in Japan this week and the Ruck podcast will be covering the whole tournament. Presented by World Cup winner and former England captain Lawrence Delalio, uh, they will bring you all the latest news uh, from Owen Slot, Stephen Jones and the rest of the writers on the ground. Just search for The Ruck on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Acast and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Right, on with the show, as they say. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by YouGov's Chris Curtis who will try to explain what is really going on with the polls. Times columnist Daniel Finkelstein on his role in the Cameron memoirs. But first, and excitingly, we go to Bournemouth, as Gordon Brown used to call it, where Esther Webber has been keeping a close eye on the Lib Dems. Are you there, Esther? I am. It's wonderfully sunny here, and all I can hear is seagulls and people's wheelie bags. Are they leaving already? Well, a few of them seem to be in motion. Well, they're, go- they're, they're preparing to go back to their constituencies and prepare for the Joe Swinson-led government. Uh, yeah. Now, normally, I would ask you to read your intro, but you can't do that because your intro is on your phone that you're talking to us on. So yeah. I'm going to read it uh, for you. Uh, so this is Matt Chorley. The Tide and Lib Dem spirits are high there in Bournemouth, where the party of faith have been buoyed by strong results in the recent elections, the arrival of a fresh-faced new leader and multiple defections from other parties. But how is their new commitment to revoking Article 50 going to fit with their traditional brand as Liberals and Democrats? An excellent intro, Esther. So explain to us what it is that has happened this week, which has got everyone quite so excited, is that the right word? Excited about the Lib Dems. So not content with their brand being kind of really Remainy, the Lib Dems have decided to go uber Remainy, and they've announced uh, this week that 
if they form a government at the next election, they would pursue a policy of unilaterally revoking Article 50. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot going on there because you could say, well, they will never have to do that because the chances oh, you're of them, cynic. <laughs> the chances of them forming a majority government are quite small, no matter what Chaka Amina may have said yesterday about winning 200 seats. So it seems to me more sort of mood music and sending the signal that if staying in the EU is what you care about above all else, then you should be voting Lib Dem. Chris, is there a risk for the Lib Dems in this? People have said, oh, they risk losing the Remainers who think there should be a second referendum, or is it is it just about brand signalling? They are unequivocally the pure Remainers. There aren't very many people who want a second referendum but don't want to remain in the European Union. And the biggest risk to the Liberal Democrats isn't necessarily, well, the two biggest risks to the Liberal Democrats, firstly, is that people just forget about them. And what this has done, if nothing else, is it's got them in the news again this weekend and again today. And the second thing, the second risk is that as Labour has finally woken up to its Remain problem and the fact that they're losing Remainers to the Liberal Democrats, they're shifting their position to more Remain. And that suddenly means that maybe that space that the Liberal Democrats have occupied suddenly disappears. So I, I think given that they're the two biggest risks the party faces, this move probably helps solve them. And the issues that it creates are probably insignificant compared to those. Danny, you don't look convinced. No, I once had a, a ban on people using bruh at the beginning of things after Brexit, but this is a really breadful policy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 look, I bow to the expert. It may, it may succeed, right? But the Liberal Democrats, they were the people who proposed an in-out referendum. They walked out of the House of Commons over it. The, the Speaker not calling their amendment. There's a lot. This is in 2008, 2009. 2008. Yeah. Then, then they were. Then they changed their policy a little bit in 2010. Didn't implement the policy they changed it to. Were against the referendum in the 2015 election. Voted for the second reading of the referendum in 2015. Then said they wanted a second uh, a second referendum, uh, and that second referendum would be not on Remain versus Leave, but on the deal without Remain as an option. Then they changed. Their mind again and said that they would have it as an option and now they want to cancel the whole thing only if they win but if they don't win then having a second referendum is a really good idea so you know the best you can say for this policy is it's apart from actually uh, leaving the one policy they haven't come out with yet um, <laughs> I, I, I just I think there are a lot of people who who want to remain um, but regard this as will regard this as very unfair, and I think a lot of the conservative voters that they would hope to target in seats they need to win, that some of those people will feel this. Now, this could turn out to be wrong. One can sometimes have that instinct oneself and find that when you do the polling, it's wrong. So I, I don't want to be overconfident about that. Uh, my view is uh, simply not about the polling. I think it's grotesque to have a referendum in which we had. So many people voting, and I know 17.4 million people is a cliche, and 16 million people voted the other way, but the fact is we did have a referendum. The Liberal Democrats voted to have one in Parliament. You can't just cancel the result on the basis that you might win an election with 30% of the vote um, without having a further rep referendum. So for me, it's, you know... and. Isn't I guess that what happens at every general election, though? If the Conservative Party win a general election and they implement a policy, and then the Labour Party win the next general election, they can reverse that policy. That is Well, they certainly democracy. can. They can do it. Um, whether it's democracy is another question. So, actually, interestingly enough, although the Liberal Democrats fa favoured having a referendum um, and urged one on David Cameron, when David they now blame David Cameron for holding the referendum they asked him to hold. Uh, and um, <laughs> the, 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 to, to be... 
fair to them. They 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 say you know it's all about a parliamentary uh, democracy, leaving aside the fact that in this parliamentary democracy, their MPs voted to have the referendum as well. Um, so. Uh, uh, but I happen to think the referendums are the right approach to very big constitutional questions. And we had one with a clear result, which we should implement. The Liberal Democrats have tried to stop that being implemented and are now complaining that it's all too complicated, which it wouldn't have been if they'd voted in favour of the deal that was on the table. So I, I'm not they, very sympathetic Why, would they, why would they have done that? They don't think it's a good idea. They don't think we should leave. A second referendum was at least a coherent position. Okay. I wasn't in favour of it. Uh, I did think you offer a referendum, you have to have one. It was at least a current position. This is an entirely different matter and a different order of it. And it and I'm disappointed because I can see that this appeals to people's passionate views. And there'll be people listening to this who are very enthused by that. I can see that. But you know, in a in a democracy, we have to have some consideration for other people's opinions and their legitimacy. And, and <laughs> you, you've I, seen politics. No, no, <laughs> was, I am I am strongly you know I strongly think Remain was the right thing to do. I'm strongly against uh, you know I strongly think that leaving will prove to be an error. Uh, but we did, you have to have some degree of fairness and recognition that not everybody thinks that. Um, and this kind of fury that we should even have asked people, and now they're so stupid, we should just cancel everything they've said, I find completely bewildering as an attitude, I must admit. Esther, we should probably talk as well about every time you turn the telly on, this seem to have attracted another MP to the Lib Dems. So the weekend we had Sam Jima, the former uh, Tory minister, who was yeah. running for the Tory leadership what, six weeks ago. Yeah. Is there a bit of a concern about, you know, they're taking ba- the, the sort of slight sense they will literally take anyone if someone wants to come across Labour, Tory, you know, there have been lots of questions about Philip Lee and his yeah. uh, views. Is that a problem, do you think? Well, if it is, then I didn't see it in evidence yesterday because, honestly, I saw a few of the defectors out and about around the place and they were being mobbed by the Lib Dems like they were sort of pop stars or something. People coming up and asking for selfies. Um, We know that's not the whole story, particularly with Philip Lee. Um, Some of the ways he has voted in the past and amendments he's proposed have caused a lot of anger in the party from LGBT advocates, but predominantly it does seem as though everyone here is very pleased to have them. Something that was raised with me last night, which could potentially lead to some uh, discord further down the road, is the idea that potentially some of these new stars are going to be selected for target seats. And if that was seen to be happening over and above kind of loyal foot soldiers, then I think that that might prove tricky. The Lib Dems do love a sort of local constitutional row, so yeah. any attempt to interfere with those processes. But yeah. well, uh, honestly, yesterday they they were being fated like, I don't know, like pop stars. Now, you should be clear, uh, Esther, you're making it sound like this is just when you were in and around the main conference hall. You went to Glee yeah. Club, didn't you? I did, I did. Why did you but, do that? <laughs> talk talk went, us through Glee Club. So for the benefit okay. of people who don't... I mean, I've been to the Lib Dem conference for 13 years, I think, and I've never been to Glee Club. You've been once. Yeah, I mean, I only had a vague conception of what it was before yesterday, um, but I knew it was this big get-together at the end of Lib Dem conference where people sing songs. Um but there's this whole songbook where they've written all these uh, 
songs about their past and glory days um, and heroes and villains of the liberal movement. And they all know the words and they love it and they get (laughs) together in this big sweaty room and sing them all at enormous volume. What was your your particular (laughs) favourite? Well, I'd, the one that stayed with me is this one they sing about the Lib Lab packed to the tune of American Pie. And it has some lyrics referring to Tony Blair I can't repeat. We, we can say that to the tune of uh, Bye Bye American Pie, it's Tony Blair can F off and die, but they don't, yes. they don't edit it. D- um, da- Danny, why have the Tories not got a, a, an equivalent <laughs> to Glee Club? Well, I'm sort of glad they don't in one way. But um, the first Liberal Democrat Liberal conference, actually, I went to was 1986. So um, I... I think actually the Glee Club is quite important because it, it's important to understand the Liberal Party has a long history and it's produced a certain sort of hardiness and, um, an imperviousness to other, to, to, to other people saying, you know, they're past it or they're useless or they can all fit in a taxi. Uh, the Liberal Party has sort of kept going whatever people throw at it. And one of the reasons for this is this kind of strong identity underneath it. So although the Glee Club for outsiders looks embarrassing, uh, uh, that's part of its point. Right? It's part of what, you know, because it's part of what, it's part of this culture. I, I'm saying it in an admiring way, actually. I think it's part of its culture as a party. And actually, one of the reasons it can contemplate this, this, um, uh, terrible policy on the referendum is because it does have this sense of self-assurance, which survives almost everything that can be thrown at them. Building on that point as well, I think that also opens up an interesting question for where they go next. So, um, it doesn't feel like it some days, but the, I think there, there is probably going to be a point in British politics where we're post the issue of Brexit. And suddenly the Lib Dems have this voter coalition. And even to a certain extent now, we're talking about the MPs that have defected over, a group of MPs who don't really unite on very much beyond the issue of Brexit. You've got people there who would have been massively in favour of all of the government cuts, cuts and austerity and people who would probably want to renationalise the railways, both sitting inside one party. And I, I think there's a sort of, there'll be an interesting question for the kind of direction the Liberal Democrats move in once this issue of Brexit stops dominating po- politics. Yeah, actually, last night um, I was talking to um, a senior Lib Dem about this and I asked her what the Lib Dems would do if, for example, Boris Johnson does manage to get a deal. Then it becomes a bit tricky for them because I'm not sure people are going to be ready for the rejoin campaign (laughs) straight away. Becoming the party of return does sound quite niche. Let's move on then and let's talk about the other parties and what is going on in the polls. This is Chris Curtis. So multi-party politics is back, but we still fall into the trap, and I think a lot of the media fall into the trap, of focusing mostly on the Tories and the Labour Party and the voters that are moving between them. But in fact, most of the voter movement is from Labour to other Remain parties and from the Conservatives to the Brexit Party. How these two things play out in an upcoming election is far more likely to impact the results than those voters that are just moving between the two main parties. So, Chris, this is interesting, and you you tweeted this last week, which is what prompted me to to get you on the podcast, because then I sort of got a bit involved, and then lots of people said, oh, it's absolutely ridiculous. There were no, you know, there were no, I said, you know, it's the same thing with the Labour vote in the South West. If the Labour vote goes down a bit and it moves the Lib Dems, the Lib Dems win seats without the Tories doing anything. It's not taking votes off the Tories necessarily. So what is it that we should be looking at if 
we're currently getting the polls wrong. So I think there's sort of two main biases. The first is just to just to focus too much on those two main parties and the people moving between them. So actually, there aren't very many voters at all going straight from Labour to the Conservatives. And there are there are you know a few but not very many voters going from the Conservatives to the Labour Party. Actually, the bigger movements in politics are between the Labour Party and their Remain voters going going off to the Liberal Democrats, some to the Greens, in Wales also some to Plaid Cymru, in Scotland also some to the SNP, and the amount of the Conservative vote that is going to the Brexit Party. And actually looking at those, those the way those voters moving is more interesting. The second bias is how this turns into seats as well, because people often, I think, seem to get a little bit confused about the idea of how the Conservatives could win a seat that is both Labour and Leave without winning over Labour Leave voters or how the Conservatives can hold such a remain uh, a leave position and yet win potentially remain seats in London, like uh, Croydon Central. And if we, we take that second example for exa- uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a good example, if you take the Labour vote there that they got at the last election and you look at the national polls and you go, well, a big chunk of that's going to go over to the Lib Dems and a big chunk of that's going to the, over to the Greens, whereas the Conservatives will hold on to most of their votes, they can win a seat like that. So actually looking at and thinking through the way these dynamics will play out, I think is is quite interesting. And and I think there's sort of a lot of biases in a lot of our commentary where we we you know sort of an in inverse correlation between the importance of a voter group and the amount of time we spend focusing and discussing them. And how much is there still a problem for the Tories with trying to get Labour voters to switch? Is the anti-Tory bias amongst Labour voters still as strong as people say? So. I, my broad way, my broad way. So the remain Labour remain voters are obviously most of them aren't going to switch over to the Conservative Party at the moment because they hate their position on the most important issue of the day. That's the vast majority of Labour voters. The smaller chunk of uh, Labour Leave voters, most of those that would consider going over to the Conservatives, went over to the Conservatives at the last election. So the ones that are left in the Labour Party are the ones that absolutely hate the Tories because that's why they didn't switch in the first place. Now, some of those Labour leavers are now saying that they'll move over to the Brexit Party um, and more of them are potentially going to move over to the Brexit Party than the Conservative Party. And that is because, you know, many of them don't like Labour's position on Brexit, but they hate the Tories more and now they've got a sort of another opportunity to, to, to defect from the party. But yeah, there's not many people going straight from Labour to the Conservatives. Do you think that's a problem, Danny, for yeah. the party. But I just don't think this is a very workable coalition for the Conservative Party in the long term. Even if you were to be able to win because of the way the votes split out in this time, because of the peculiarities of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he, Jeremy Corbyn is now the person leading the kind of party of liberal urban graduates who is not those things, right? Um, uh, maybe he's urban, but but um, but it's different from those. You know, he, he doesn't he doesn't um, he's got a different kind of politics, which does have an appeal, but just not to that broad group of people. So he's very particular. The Conservative Party is moving towards trying to create. Um, to create itself with the same sort of voter coalition you associate with the Brexit party or with indeed the Republicans in the United States. And I don't think that is a long term, quite aside from its attractiveness, I don't think to me, I don't think it's a very good long term position for the Conservative Party because I think it's going to shrink that group. I think the country is going to become more liberal, more urban, uh, more diverse as the Conservative Party moves away from that position. So I think, you know, maybe maybe it's something that's only going to last a short period of time. Maybe it's around Brexit, but I don't think it's I think it's a mistake. I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with any of the points Tanya just made there. 
I think the difficulty for the Conservative Party, and, and part of the, the reason that explains a lot of Boris Johnson's behaviour, is not necessarily because this was a good choice, but it was literally their only yes, choice that. that he had, given the circumstances he faced. That. You know, given that they, how far they dropped down in the European Parliament elections and how far they fell off an absolute cliff in the opinion polls in the weeks in the, in the final weeks of Theresa May, most of their voters at some point, yeah, the majority of their voters in some of our polls from the 2017 election were moving over to the Brexit party. They could have been absolutely decimated. And the biggest threat to the party's future was making sure they could win back over those Brexit party voters. So the fact that Boris Johnson has at least stabilised it, even if that's no. difficult for their long-term future, is, is probably the best choice they I, had. I do understand. I, do, I think that old the coalition that I've talked about may not be actually one that's uh, doable. And the Conservative, not just this time, but in future. And the Conservative Party may not be able to put that coalition back together again. It's just that I think the position they're moving towards is much less attractive grouping, much for, for a broad election victory. And mm. I think they'll find it, they'll struggle. Esther, down there in the sunshine, is there much thought being given uh, amongst Lib Dems to the fact that if they do very well at the election, that actually they might end up helping Boris Johnson win the election? They're not really depriving Boris Johnson many votes, they deprive the Labour Party of lots of votes, and so we end up with a Boris Johnson government again. To be honest, I don't think they really care at this point. <laughs> They're just um, giddy. Yeah, they really are. They're sort of high on their own supply, and... <laughs> They really think they have a chance here to to win a significant number of seats. They see themselves as potentially being the power brokers again. And what's interesting is, uh, in a way, this revoked position plays into that because you can see that potentially if they do have a role in a future government, then a second referendum demand begins to look less radical and like more of a, a compromise so they, so they they go into the election demanding revoke and then if they have yeah. to compromise because they're in coalition well they say oh, okay fine we'll have a second referendum where yeah. revoke is yeah. one of the options because david cameron's been back in the news and we'll talk about his uh, book later on but joe swinson's been asked quite a lot about her role in the coalition and she's been trying to defend yeah. austerity where do you think the party is on the sort of possibility of returning to government. Nick Clegg did so much to try and get his party to a place where they were willing to go into government. Yeah. They did, and they, they were nearly wiped out as a result. Are, they, are yeah. they ready for that again? It's really difficult to say, because as you, as you mentioned, Joe Fenton is associated to some extent with the coalition era. And it's safe to say she wasn't everyone's first choice uh, for who would be in the leadership contest. Um, and I think possibly some of their younger base now, the newer members, while they don't necessarily remember the coalition years, they do they do have a more sort of instinctively left wing position, I would say, and that that would seem like a problem for them if they are to govern again or have a role in governing. Then again, if they are in that position, it's unlikely to be alongside the Conservative Party. Chris? I, I do think this interaction between the Lib Dems and the Conservatives is important, but just, just, just to bump, jump back to that previous point about the Lib Dems hoping to win all of these seats and things. What's interesting and, and is, is that most of the seats the Liberal Democrats are hoping to win will come directly off the Conservatives. And yes, they're winning most votes off Labour and that could end up helping the Conservatives in those Conservative marginal seats. But again, the Liberal Democrats will mostly be relying on winning Conservative seats. And 
that opens up sort of two interesting things. Firstly, that encourages a lot of Labour voters to tactically vote in those seats and move over to the Liberal Democrats potentially. And that's one of the things the Liberal Democrats will be banking on. And there'll be a lot of encouragement, I think, from pro-Remain organisations for them to do so. The second thing is that there's this weird... The, the, a lot of the, the things that will help the Liberal Democrats are kind of out of their control, most notably the Conservative Party's percentage of the vote. So if the Liberal Democrats hold the same percentage of the vote and the Liberal, and the Conservatives are on 40%, they win hardly any seats. If they drop down to closer to 30%, they win a lot more seats. So depending on how well the Conservative Party does, ironically, if they're losing a lot more votes over to the Brexit Party, that can have a dramatic effect on the number of seats the Liberal Democrats win. I think that's all we've got time for to talk about polls there. So I'm going to let you go off and okay. go on the on the carousel or, you know, wander <laughs> down the pier, have an ice cream, Thank prepare you. yourself for Joe Swinson's speech. Uh, <laughs> we say goodbye to Esther. Uh, we'll be back after this short break when we're going to talk about David Cameron's memoirs. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Okay, welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm still joined in the studio by Chris Curtis, and this is Daniel Finkelstein. Well, Matt, for me, the Cameron memoirs didn't actually start this week. Uh, they started nearly 10 years ago uh, when I was reading a book by the civil rights historian Taylor Branch, who was a roommate of Bill Clinton's and had produced a uh, secret diary of Bill Clinton. And the whole thing has been one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life. So this is fascinating, Danny. Just explain how this originally came about. How did you end up recording David Cameron? Throughout his well, it was an idea I had when I read this book. Bill Clinton had asked Taylor Branch, uh, his college, his roommate, wasn't college roommate, actually, campaign roommate, whether he could record his secret diary effectively for his memoirs. And I just had the idea, well, that would be a completely fascinating thing to do. I'd really understand what was going on. So I texted David. He had the same mobile number he always used. And we'd known each other for 20 years, as I'd been a sort of ally of his in uh, and his of mine in terms of thinking of ideas for changing the Conservative Party. And he immediately replied yes we should definitely do that um so uh so i started doing it about a month in and i would go and see him 
in his flat in Downing Street. And we would just sit on the sofa, him on the sofa, me next to him on to, to his left, usually uh, on the armchair. I'd have a, a mini disc recording, which I'd been, cause I wanted to keep these safe. Uh, and I want, they were his recordings. That's very important to the, to the sort of, um, as it were, to the authenticity and the, and the truth telling he does on them. I wanted physically to make sure that he could secure them. So I would record them on this mini disc. Then I could physically hand it over to him at the end of the uh, discussion. And I used to just prompt him. And if he was vague on something, I'd push him. So just to give an example, example everyone says david is uh, was very complacent he went into this referendum he thought he was definitely going to win that's why he called it well i actually asked him that question several times i think three different times and he wasn't confident that he would win the referendum that was not part of his reasoning what did you learn doing it that you didn't know about prime ministers having well, sort of observed them up close okay, previously so, so a couple of big things just about their time one was how much of his time and therefore of the discussions that we had related to diplomacy or security matters uh, he'd often be spending quite a lot of time on the weekend he'd, he'd somebody had been captured in a foreign country or there was a bomb heading somewhere and only he knew about it and he had to uh, say what would we would do it would decide what we would do about it and then you know, wait nervously to find out whether that decision had been a success. That took up quite a bit of his time. The other thing that was interesting to me is it wasn't enough for prime ministers to just say broadly what they wanted to happen. Let's take the London riots, for example. He really had to micromanage how many police were on the street, where they were. Um, He had to push people to actually, otherwise what you do is you said something and came back a year later. I think he gives an example of some prison in Jamaica where you'd come back a year later and nobody had done anything about it because they thought it was an eccentric idea and they didn't know that he'd been being serious so I, I thought it was very interesting you have to really put pressure on it but it was also quite sometimes it was quite amusing to have that inside it, there was all that fuss where he sent Rebecca Brooks a text which finished lol which he thought meant lots of love and everyone else knows means lots of laughs and um or laugh out loud uh, laugh out loud i'm sorry <laughs> laugh out loud i apologize even i don't know what it means <laughs> laugh out loud um and i knew that everyone was sort of questioning whether he really thought that and i knew that he did because he actually sent me lol when my father died <laughs> wow that, that is yes well yeah we, we hoped that that was because he thought it was lots of love exactly now, chris what was interesting when we were uh, looking ahead to Cameron's book coming out i i asked you to have a, basically have a rummage around in the what the public thought of uh david cameron because it, it strikes me that at the moment almost everything every time i look at some of you polling everything splits on remain leave mm. lines that you know remainers think one thing and leavers think the opposite David Cameron has achieved a thing that almost nobody else has. He is almost exactly the same uh, that uh, 64% of Remainers, Remainers are negative about him, 62% are Leavers are negative. Uh, positive is not very good. It's 13% of Remainers. Leavers, slightly more positive, 17%. Yeah, and it's that's a further illustration of just how dramatically divided people have become down these remain leave lines. That those sort of most conservative voters are leave voters, and they've been willing to say, "No, we don't have a favourable opinion of this prime minister we liked and voted for for many years um, because he had a different position to us on Brexit." Um, and that's a big driving force of why lots of people don't like David Cameron. And when we look at his overall popularity numbers, they're quite low because. Leave voters, who are most of the uh, the Conservative base, don't have a favourable opinion of him and, and how well he did as Prime Minister. The main voters hate him because they blame him for Brexit, and mm. Leave voters hate him because they don't give him the credit for allowing Brexit to come about. Exactly that, yeah. And most Remain voters just aren't Conservatives, so they don't like him for those reasons as well. Given, uh, I mean, there's been an awful lot around already, um, Danny, from the, the book. Was there anything that 
has surprised you or things that people might have been surprised by when they when they come to actually read the book well i um i was pretty i mean it's obviously only a side part of the book but the 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 material on his background is very interesting however much you think david cameron is sort of quite posh um when and when you deal with him actually he is quite posh yes but and when you deal with him by the way that's not the that's not the impression you get of either him or his wife not directly anyway but i but it's when you read the book you think wow and he said that to me you're we you know when 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 we talk about this you'll be amazed and and indeed that's correct um it's very very interesting that you know i hope that people will find the explanation of his thinking on europe interesting because it's very honest I, one of the things about doing these tapes is he had to be clear what he was doing as he went along and when he did the book he couldn't lie to himself about what he'd thought because it was all there in front of you, you can't then say well that's not what i thought so so it does take you through his thought process. And, and however angry, for example, somebody is about having this referendum, think it was unnecessary, she's not my position, or angry about why he's was in favour of Lee, I hope that people will look at this and think, well, that's an interesting account. And he's clear what he thought he got wrong. But I think there's also, I think, a very strong, I think the arguments are very strong in there for, um, uh, and they are his, by the way, um, you know, because he directly, he did those arguments himself, you know, he wrote this himself. Um, I think uh, people will find that very interesting. So I hope people will give it a chance. Some people say they don't really, they really don't want to know. And I understand that. But Lots of lots of times readers hopefully don't fit into that category. Just one thing I was going to say, just because I, I don't know if it's it, it is something that comes out in the book or is is kind of your interpretation is it felt a lot during the Cameron years like he was basically swimming against a tide and he was sort of start, started too far up the river anyway. So part of the difficulties he faced was coming into government and not getting that majority in the first place and then having to fight to keep Scotland um, from going independent and then having to fight to get that majority against all of the odds in the referendum. And one of the things he had to do was then to do the referendum and having to fight that. So it felt almost like he was having to spend his political capital a lot quicker and he started with less of it in the first place than you'd normally expect. Yes, that's very interesting. I tell you the other thing, though, that that did come out as well. That is a very interesting point. I think that's correct, actually, and I haven't really thought about it. I'm not sure you'll think it does come up. I'm not sure that's just an interesting perspective. I think that one of the things that I was struck by, I did sort of know this because I knew him during this period, but it was really struck by, was that David Cameron is himself a Eurosceptic. We're now in this position whereby all the Eurosceptics are for leaving and all the Remain people, you know, pretend that they were always like quite enthusiastic. I mean, I was obviously, but there is actually a category of people who were like me, who were for Remain, but we're also very Eurosceptic. And David Cameron is one of those people. And that does come across in the book. And I think it was a factor in calling the referendum. He, he said it to me, in fact, once, um, I don't think, I know that people are asking for this referendum. I don't think it's an unreasonable request. That's critical. So it, it, everyone thinks it's just about calculation. There was an important element in it where he thought, I know I'm being put under a lot of pressure. I don't actually think this this pressure is unreasonable, and that of course means you can't completely rebut it if you think it's um, not if it's reasonable. And that's an important element of his makeup, which maybe hasn't people don't really know. Do you think the fact that he was Eurosceptic played a part in the fact that the Remain campaign then was a bit flat and and lacked the no i think he was, he was very good at campaigning for i think the in elections posi- and that i sort of thing. think the position that he took which so first of all uh, i think that everyone th- assumes that the result for remain was terrible and could have been much better but actually 
when you look at what the Remain campaign was um, suggesting, you know, what I was suggesting, which is let's have uh, free movement of people with Latvia, uh, it's surprising we even came second, right? Um, so uh, I, maybe 48% wasn't actually a bad result. One of the arguments for having this referendum is people voted to leave in it. Yes, no, I totally agree. Um, something that the political establishment, this, I know I'm using the term, you know, terms that you more associate with Aaron Banks, but the political establishment was totally against it. If and people felt the other way. And that's had, what it reflected. If we'd had a result of 80% remain, that was a case for not having had the referendum. Let me tell you the thing that did strike me in, in, in the book. Um, the AV referendum, what a political waste of time that was. Nobody was interested in it. Even the Liberal Democrats were not in favour of it. Right? Uh, that was a political referendum held completely pointlessly only for political reasons. This wasn't actually... <laughs> I may have mentioned it before on the podcast, but I'm currently I'm about to embark on a, on a stand-up tour, uh, and I do a little bit on the AV referendum, and people have completely forgotten that it happened. I tell a story about how uh, I was working at the Independent on Sunday at the time, and if there was anywhere that was going to be pro-AV, it was going to be the Independent on Sunday. And we organised a Yes to AV street party, and nobody came. <laughs> and we had to have the only photo we could use in the paper was a close-up of some cupcakes with just members of staff milling about blurred in the background is it any wonder that 68 percent ended up voting against it um, but that's all we've got time for uh, this week if you do want to come and see me on tour go to mytimesplus.co.uk um bath maidenhead and london have sold out but there are tickets for elsewhere don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on apple spotify acast or wherever you listen so you get the david cameron interview as soon as it drops later this week send me your questions to redbox at the times.co.uk for now my thanks to esther down in bournemouth chris and danny in the studio and for me matt jolly it's goodbye This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.